friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners. We love to have you. We hope that these conversations have consequences for you, wonderful consequences that make you grow and make you happy and inspire you. Today, we have a great lineup as we try to do every week. We're going to go across the pond to chat with veteran journalist, author, and TV host Kevin Turley with the latest news from Great Britain. We're going to talk about the tragic stabbing of a Catholic lawmaker which has gripped the world this last week. Sir David Amos left the world suddenly all due to a, a stabbing, maybe related to terrorism. It's still being investigated. Kevin is going to give us give us the latest on the tragic incident and all the different ways that it's uh, been experienced in, in England. But first, we turn to Jessica Houghton-Wilson. She's a professor of humanities and classical education at the University of Dallas. She has two books coming out next year, and she's here to give us a sneak peek of both of them and also the benefit of her very intelligent mind and her expansive vision, all about the classics and wonderful literature. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me on. So, Jessica, I have this impression of your work as as someone who has a way of explaining how how literature, how the novel can deepen for us our understanding of of the great truths and especially of the great Christian truths. Is is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny to hear someone describe your work like it's this thing outside of you. It's kind of like when people talk about the tradition, like it's a, a handful of books you wrap up in a package and just mm-hmm. pass to the next person. And for me, it's just an outgrowth of I've always loved stories since I was a kid, and I've always been formed by them and shaped by them in my house. And so I've been sharing that passion in all the different forms that I can by writing about it, speaking about it, sharing it in a classroom. So it's really just about who I am as a person. And Jessica, right before we got on the phone on this on on this uh, interview, I was searching desperately through a Chester one of my Chesterton books. I think it's an orthodoxy where uh, Chesterton describes the novel as a Christian thing that it it happens because Christianity is romantic. It, there's because romance exists in Christianity, and then when that romance that Christian romance is written down, what it results in is a novel. Now I'm not asking you to tell me where where that what page that is in orthodoxy. I don't know if that <laughs> if you remember reading something like that. But does that make sense to you? Well, I don't know exactly where. Chesterton would be talking about that, but the the idea of the stories that are found in Chesterton, right? The, the idea of the the ways that he came to know Christianity was through story, mm-hmm. and so even Orthodoxy, he felt he says this uh, this is a memoir that is your is not a normal memoir because it's essentially also an argument, but it's not a normal argument, and he he interrelates those things in a way that imitates what Scripture itself is doing. It's a giant story that's also revealing to you the truth that you could actually right into claims, but it's telling you knowledge about the world in a story form. And so all of Christianity is just this great massive story through which to see our reality. And so then every story that's responding to that is either true or false or good or beautiful based on that master story that's that's written into creation. Oh, that's a lovely way to th- think about that. Why do you think that people, uh, men and women, do we are we able to to approach these great truths more easily through through novels than we are maybe through um, through through metaphysical works or what do you think? Well, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis describes it in the discarded image, in which he he says that the medieval thought of a person in three concentric circles. The outer circle of a person was the imagination. The next level in was the intellect and the middle was the will. So you first began by how do you see things and then your intellect can analyze how you see those things. 
but first is just the senses. It's it's the way you approach the whole world by how you see and hear. I mean, that's why all through scripture it is, they have eyes that do not see, they have ears that do not hear. We have to have this imagination that is porous, that allows us to, to see and hear reality as it is. And then we can analyze it and didactically talk about it. I and mean, this is the role of literary critics, right? You, you have the great stories that people read, and then you kind of walk people through what it is that they've read and that they can draw from. So I think the imagination is the first access point. It's the one that all of us know from the time we're children. It's the one that shapes who we are and how we have a vision of things. Jessica, you've got two books coming out next year, and we want to get to both of them. But let's start with The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. I'm especially really interested in this because I come from a great books background, um, oh. but as, but St. John's College, so it was secular. And so I'm always, I'm very interested in that sort of great books approach um, when it comes to, you know, more things that hint to the spiritual and Mm -hmm. uh, moral development as a Christian. And so this book really calls us to be the best versions of ourselves. And you pull from lots of different literature, but one of the books you um, pull from is Death Comes for, uh, for the Archbishop from Willa Cather. And can you tell us more about this especially? Sure. So I tried to consider what are those virtues that don't fit easily into an American identity um, as I've grown up with it, and the, the conflation, I think, so much between our Christian identity and the American identity. And so there's a lot of that we've inherited that we're really comfortable with about being kind to one another. So I tried to look at virtues that we're not comfortable, but they're still scriptural, and they need to then override um, some of our sensibilities. So one of that being our lack of comfort with death, whereas the Christian tradition is rooted in, like, memento mori. Like, we're mm -hmm. going to die. And I think it's important for us as we make decisions about what the good life is to always have that mortality in front of us, right? But then, of course, also the immortality afterwards. Like, we are souls that will not die, but we are creatures in this certain state right now that will. And um, to always be reflecting on that so that we can be making these choices for how we're supposed to live. And I think, so death comes for the Archbishop, for example. Uh, you have this death comes, so it sounds like it's going to be this, like, mystery story, and it sounds like it's going to be, like, really exciting, and yet he doesn't die until the very end of the story. It's really just about a good life. What is a good life? But she puts death in front of you from the moment you open the book. And so you're thinking about what the good life is always with that end of death registering in your in your mind. Yeah, I really like that, because it reminds me, actually, of one of my tutors who is one of the sort of old school guys at St. John's that came from um, the University of Chicago. He always just said, you know, the job of St. John's College is to make you better human beings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so even in that secular sense, there was that classical idea of what these books were supposed to do for yes, you. Yes, and that's absolutely. exactly what you're doing. But in this Christian context, I just, I'm really, I'm really excited about it personally. <laughs> I think our viewers will be too. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, it's so much of my heart just poured into it because I, I think this is the point of life. And um, for me as a Christian, you know, what does it mean to be a human being? You can't understand without the human one, right? Without mm -hmm. the sense of God at the center of that conversation. No, absolutely. My experience has been that in that in novels is when I, when I touch most deeply and when I I, when I feel that I grasp deep spiritual truths that affect me, and and they keep affecting me, and they they stick with me, and they they, they and I mull over them because they come clothed in in personalities, and because they come clothed in drama and human interaction, or at least very real on the page. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned virtues that that we have discarded. And is that the way your book is arranged about different virtues? Because you mentioned the virtue of uh, remembering that our life is finite, that death comes for all of us. And another right. virtue that I think of that I think of all the time that we do encounter in novels, but we don't uh, as a good thing. But we don't often encounter it in, in in our modern world is a virtue of obedience. Is there one that that you is there one of one of your uh, topics that you cover the virtue of obedience? Oh no! But I wish I would have talked to you before I wrote this. Oh. <laughs> I think the next book then. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna have to get on that. You know, it's funny when I went through all the different virtues. Like there were so many that I thought, okay, also I would need to write about this. I would need to write about, um, you know, the Christian respect for age, both for children and, and the elderly, is something that we don't really talk about a whole lot that we need to. So there were all these virtues that I kept thinking. These are things that are particular to Christianity. Um, but the ones that the ones that I forefronted for me were ones that came from books that I've just been teaching for years and loving and 
in a sense, I think that obedience underlies all of it, but it's an obedience of the created order, you know, um, submit, maybe submission is a better way of, of referring to it. The way that I write about it is submitting to how you were made versus trying to make yourself realizing that there's an author of your story versus trying to write your own story. And yeah. so in that sense, I guess there is a submission to the authority that is the author of your life. Wow, that's very pregnant with meaning nowadays, Jessica, uh, submitting to the way you were made. I can that sort of that rings like a here a huge loud bell in my head considering what we're confront confronting these days in, in human anthropology yeah absolutely I mean people are very into autonomy I, you know there's all these books I mean my first book was against this idea of the autonomous self the authority of the autonomous self and instead recognizing that our limitations could be good things I mean this is a lot of the Catholic writers of the 20th century wrote about limitation in a beautiful way and instead of a negative way and our current culture is all about conquering the limitations exceeding the limitations you know living the impossible dream instead of recognizing limitations are a key to discernment we've lost if we don't see our limitations as guiding us toward a certain path that's why we feel restless and directionless we're not acknowledging those limitations as gates that are moving us towards the right doors. And isn't that sense of total autonomy, complete individuality, don't you think that that, is, that creates terrible anxiety in people? Like the, oh, the, the kind absolutely. the kind we see in, in when you're confronted by a long menu at a restaurant, several yeah. pages menu, <laughs> and you say, what yeah. in the world? <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. You know, Walker Percy talks about this a lot in his own novels. His novels are the existential self, just in complete crisis, where... You, you have no idea what road to take. You don't know that you're even a pilgrim on a road. You're just lost in the wilderness because you don't recognize the road. And I have a friend who wrote a book, I uh, love this title, You Are Not Your Own, Alan Noble. And that title just kind of sums up the face, right? Of course, it comes from scripture. But you're not your own. You belong to someone else. And once you admit that fact, suddenly the road, you know, each step may be a little bit more light on it. And it may be a little bit more clear the direction you're supposed to go. Yeah. Now, I mean, even to sometimes all this cancel culture going on, and to even say that there is is a road or, you know, any sort of reference to teleology of a human being, um, it's really easy to become concern, consumed with false heroes and narratives. Mm-hmm. And and we have these literary traditions. I know that you did a really great job sticking up for Flannery O'Connor when that was going, going down. But, how, I mean, you see this in your students. What, what do these books and these literary traditions do that can bring – how do they bring – hearts and minds and souls and all that back to these more transcendental mm-hmm. uh, ideas of what of human flourishing. So one of the things that I used to teach for first year seminars for undergrads was a course that I said, you know, writing your own story. So I, I, I labeled it the way that it really drew Gen Z and millennials in the mm-hmm. conversation. <laughs> but, it, but what we started with was Augustine confessions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead it was learning what they eventually learned and covered in the course of reading Confessions and then Surprised by Joy, Lewis, is that God is writing their lives. They couldn't decide what century they were born in. They didn't get to decide their gender. They didn't get to decide who their parents were. They didn't get to decide who their family members were. They didn't get to decide what country they were born in. Like, And suddenly they realized that trying to write the story of their lives, all the things that God made the decisions already for them. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that stepping into this tradition of people trying to look at their lives this way, like they get to see that all of history is a story that started way before them that they're now participating in. And when their lives end, the story isn't over. There's right. another story that continues beyond them. And so getting to see the tradition as this living thing in which, yes, their story has a part to play, but it's not the grand finale. It's just part of this very long story that God's telling. And I think the tradition reminds you of that. You get to meet all of these people that have come before you, and there's just millions of them. And there's so many stories that are told, and then there are those that are untold that they get to discover. And I think that's a great part of this living tradition, this understanding of it as being something dynamic that you're stepping into and engaging with. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm here with my TCA colleague and co-host, Lee Sneed. And we have Professor Jessica Hooten-Wilson with us. She's from the University 
University of Dallas, and she's discussing two great books that she has written. The second one is called Learning the Good Life, Wisdom from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. You know, talk, listening to you talk, Jessica, about these students that you're teaching and, and you direct them to where they are standing in relationship to their ancestral past, who, why they're standing in a certain place and time, a result of certain uh, genetic and uh, familial acts that, that result in them. And you're able to direct them into into thinking of how how wildly adventurous that is to think of yourself yeah. as as a product of, of fabulous people that have come before and you're living this great story. Yeah. That seems to me very romantic and much more romantic than to think of yourself as starting from scratch every time. Like every human being starts from scratch, starts at zero. Is right. that how is that how your how your students were perceiving that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the way you're talking about it does sound like Chesterton. It's echoes of Chesterton. You know, the excitement for the two year old Chesterton, right? Is, you know, that the door open. But imagine a world in which there are no doors because you have to create them to make them. And then when you make them, you already know what's behind them. The world is a, is a lot less enlivening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot less excitement when there's no mystery, when you're the only person involved in making the world. And so I love Chesterton's idea of these opening these doors, seeing what's around the corner. It's it's life as a discovery. It's uh, what Bernanos calls the adventure of sanctity, right? I mean, it's this wonderful path in which you you try to follow those who came before you, but they came before you. <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. this mysterious, uh, paradoxical reality where, where anything can happen and, and yet the more you step on the right stones you get to a greater destination you know than when you fall on your way and uh, so I think it's I love thinking of reality in that sense with with that mystery and that adventure some people are afraid to pick up novels some good Christians some people people who are trying to be careful of what they read because it might it might lead them down bad paths or wrong ways of thought and I'm I'm the first one to say that I'm not I'm not making fun of that because I'm very careful what I ingest mm-hmm. right, right. In, in literature and movies and all that what would you say to people like that who want to who want to deepen themselves d- deepen their understanding in, of literature and, and drink from you know the founts of literature but without uh, getting themselves sort of in the mire of things Amit Majmudar wrote this poem called Reading it is beautiful it's dedicated to Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, yeah. The reason, the reason I love it as a way of starting with this question is he, he talks about, I stand before books as I stand before the night sky. And the books are these infinities that are all demanding to be explored, but I don't have a map and I don't have a guide. Then the blind librarian comes and he takes my hand and I suddenly feel secure knowing where to look and all the stars open into suns. And it, so it's this, we've lost the understanding of reading as a communal activity. And that's one of the reasons I think that it frightens people because you don't know what book to choose. It, you know, like you said a second ago with the limitless list of options. And so you're afraid to, to choose a book. You're afraid to ask because is it, isn't it supposed to be about preference? Isn't it supposed to be about taste and what you enjoy and what you prefer? But it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, reading for thousands of years was about someone showing you what to read, telling you what to read, how to read, telling you how to read. Most of education was telling you how to read and how to engage with the text. And so we've lost this sense that reading should be about the masters, those who have loved the books, who know which books to read, helping the novices walk through that process so that eventually the novices then become the masters for others. I think we don't need to be afraid if we're considering reading that way. It should not be this isolating, is this for my own pleasure? But if it's for my own pleasure, are my pleasures going to lead me awry? And instead consider reading with guides and reading with others and reading in community and looking for that advice for how to read well. And I love this idea of librarian, like Beatrice. It's like, so beautiful. In that, in that poem, it's beautiful. It's funny. I have a soft spot for Borges because my dad was an English professor and one of his treasured possessions was a photograph of Borges, a desk lecturing in his class. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. It was like so a cool. really good deal. Yeah. Um, so cool. So, and he actually was sort of like my guide through books before before I got to St. John's, he was always handing me things to read and things he thought were, you know, appropriate. And I remember things like The Awakening and, yes. you know, just things like that when you're a teenage girl, it's just like, oh, this whole world out there. And of course, yes. you know, the Lost Generation writers, of course, appeal to you. And so I, I felt ready and not ready for St. John's. But because you start off with day anima, and I'm like, what did I do? This is in English. <laughs> um, so you don't, but you don't just include literature in, in your books. You, you do the whole campaign. Canon, 
and okay. you bring it and what I really like actually for me as I've become well great book speak right a more advanced student even though I'm not technically a student anymore and I'm allowed to read outside resources and read the letters of Flannery O'Connor and mm-hmm. realize and sort of read the more gossipy things about who was friends with whom and who proofread whose books and what I find now is that I read one novel and then I re- it leads me to other books because of the references in it I have to look that up and then I find that and the book themselves, and obviously that works better when they're contemporaries of each other. Do you do, like, like what's the uh, plan, the layout of your book? Is it chronological or do you go by themes or how does it, how does are that help? Are talking about the scandal of holiness? We are talking about um, learning the good life. life. Learning the good life, the second one. Sorry, I should so, have <laughs> My publishing life is so weird. I like, have <laughs> these like three or four year breaks and then I put out three books at one time. Yeah. <laughs> um, learning the good life is chronological. The theme that kind of ties the reflections or the introductions, the exordiums of each text together is what does it mean to learn as a Christian? So this goes back to the the idea of, you know, the tradition, the practices Mm -hmm. of piety by which to approach a text. Because if you approach text as a minor trying to pull whatever gems you think are worthwhile, like you could just be pulling a bunch of rocks and and dust out of uh, the text itself and not get what the text is trying to do. And so we, we talk about the virtues of reading you know, the ways of approaching text through the text themselves. So the exodian kind of shows you, it guides you. It's, it's that librarian that says, like, look here. And then you read the excerpt following it, and then there's discussion questions. And so we collected professors across the country from all different traditions, and even some of my friends who are teachers but who are not in the university system, and uh, asked them, like, what text you know, if, if the world was ending, what is the small mm. excerpt that you want to make sure the next generation doesn't lose? And so, and I wanted, I wanted the book to be a lot more expansive than I think a lot of these readers have been in the past. We, we've had um, probably more of a canon that had this majority, um, you know, very male, white, Western, mm-hmm. just at the heart of things, because that was what we were used to and that was passed down to us. But the more that I've been in graduate school and out of grad, grad school and getting to hear some of these voices I had never heard before, yeah. and you know, discovering Marjorie Kemp and discovering Julian of Norwich and discovering Perpetual and these are things I just never had access to. And so we made sure that we were showing everyone that was at the table, right? And um, trying to be as hospitable to this feast of discourse throughout the tradition as we could be. So, so the book moves all the way from I think it's like Confucius to Toni Morrison essentially. Oh I love it and I love the idea of the conversation notes because post pandemic it's exactly what everybody's wanting and is it Mm -hmm. something you could do you could pick you wouldn't have to do the whole book you could just pick a chapter to read with your friends and are they they self-contained? Yes absolutely and that's one of the reasons we did it too you know I have the privilege right now of traveling to lots of classical schools and mostly who I talk to are not students I'm talking to parents (laughs) Mm -hmm. the parents are thinking like I know that I should choose this education and great books for my kids, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never read Homer, never read Shakespeare, and I, I cannot keep up with my child. And so this is also one of those books where you could you could do a section of it at dinner together mm-hmm. and yes. you could just enjoy reading parts of it aloud and asking questions and having dinner table conversation I mean, we very intentionally put a big table on the front of the book and showed all these friends dining around it on our cover to say like to suggest that like, this is what intellectual life should look like it should look like a table it should look very relaxed and enjoyable this is not an elitist thing that belongs in the academy these are the texts that that make us and that should be shaping our culture I like this, Jessica, because I think in the absence of literature, what takes the place for that kind of interaction and back and forth is politics, which is not, you know, which is can be very divisive and can cause a lot of anxiety because of, you know, if, if your guys in, in power right now or your, your, your political, whoever you think is correct. Um, I like the, I like the idea of having a book like yours as, as a point of departure for, for wonderful conversation. Well, and it's also about permanent things. You know, you don't have to feel like if you're talking about justice and Aristotle, that he's going to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, whereas if you talk about justice according to the current headline or the current political party, that has a temporary label on it, right? It's going to expire as a conversation pretty quick. So these kind of conversations will last 
forever, right? Your understanding of Aristotle's justice you'll return to over and over and over again. You can't finish it. I read a right. I read a little quote from Confucius the other day by chance, and I sent it to my. I have two children now who are married, and it said something like, "It is the duty of children to give grandchildren to their parents." <laughs> And I thought, wow, what an incredibly intelligent man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was listening to Sarah this morning that was talking about if you want to be honored, honor your father, your father and mother. I thought, oh, yeah, that's I mean, that is the way that this works. Like, it's just revealing. This is how the world is, right? Mm -hmm. These things that tell us the truth. And there's so much out there to to delve into. I think that your students are very lucky, Jessica, to have you as a teacher. It sounds like you're somebody who who has a, a very big mind and a very big heart oh oh, thank you yes and I you know I I love the connection between the two to me it should be I worked at John Brown University for years and I loved their motto um heart head and hand all of those go together to to make us who we are I I really love that and can can you tell me all I could think of was all the different families I want to give this book to as a Christmas present but the (laughs) publishing the publish date isn't until the spring is that right right Right. So, um, so Night Next of Christmas. Holiness is March, and then um, in May it is uh, Learning the Good Life. And going okay. back to your Holiness book, Jessica, why you said in March? What the Holiness it's book? March. It's in yes. March. Okay. And who who is the focus of that book? Like, who do you who do you envision as a as a great uh, reader for that book? Well, you know, you were just talking about politics, and I think that's actually a good reference point because our political culture really demands that we we use whatever means we can towards what we think is a good end, even though it's an impermanent end, right? And so we're willing to completely adjust our motivations and our actions for anything. So I'm hoping that my book is really for the church to remind us that the political sphere is not the sphere that we ultimately belong to. Mm-hmm. And we might have to be, as you know, Russell Moore would say, like we might have to be defensive within that sphere to protect religious liberty. But that's only so we can reinvest in the church and go back to what it looks like as a community to strive after holiness. So my book is, is very much for the church. I'm hoping that people are going to read it in Bible studies and start bringing literature into the, their Sunday school classes. And that this is the kind of book that will replace, you know, talking about about the pop lit, you know, at your local book club. Instead, maybe I can, maybe I can in part be a blind librarian and say, <laughs> here are some of the books that I would recommend you read. Well, it sounds like you would be the perfect guy, Jessica. And I, I thank <laughs> you. I thank you very much for, for sharing your time with us. And and we hope that, that your books will achieve great success and lead a lot of uh, hearts and minds to the truth and ultimately to God. So thank you for being with us today, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're happy to introduce Kevin Turley with the latest news from Great Britain. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you, Gracie. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to having you on, and unfortunately, this is a very sad occasion that I've asked you to come and have this conversation with us. And the occasion is that uh, you've had a terrible tragedy in the UK, the death by stabbing of David Amos. I wonder if you could lay uh, the groundwork for our listeners in case maybe they haven't uh, been paying attention to this tragedy and tell us what happened to poor David Amos. Sir David Amos was a 69-year-old member of the British Parliament, an MP, which is the main legislative uh, body. And he'd been an MP since 1983 and was elected to a constituency south of London, uh, sorry, uh, east of London in Essex. He's a member of the Conservative Party. Anyway, he was holding one of his uh, constituency surgeries, which is something that MPs do all the time in this country. It's an opportunity for their constituents, any members of the public, to meet a member of parliament, to often lobby them for something or you know, get them involved in some issue. And he was doing this on last Friday, October 15th, at approximately five past 12, five past midday, he was stabbed by a 25-year-old man. Allegedly, this is all under police investigation, but uh, 
he was he suffered multiple stab wounds. Three hours later, was pronounced dead. A 25-year-old man was arrested in connection with the killing, and a knife was recovered at the scene. And uh, I think it's not only extremely sad, but it was uh, something which probably sent the nation into a state of shock. Um, although there has been um, killings of MPs, the, the last one was in uh, 2016. This is not a common thing in this country. This is this is still a very rare thing. This kind of violence uh, against members of parliament. It goes against the sort of way in which parliamentarians are are and should interact with their constituents. They should be people that we can approach and we can make our views clear to. And so the, the nation went into a state of sort of shock on Friday about this and, and great sadness because of who Sir David was and in particular who he was for Catholics. So Sir David was a devout Catholic. Uh, the father of five, and he was also inter- and he was also instrumental in strengthening ties. I understand with the Holy See, between the between the UK and the Holy See. He was obviously a person who was well respected and well loved. So, what are people speculate? What's what are the speculations? What what could be the the killer's motive in killing the poor poor David Amos? Well, Grazi, the first thing to say is that it's it's an ongoing police investigation. So we have to be kind of careful about making any assumptions and the police police were very, very slow to say anything. Then they, the Essex police who were dealing with the matter said it was a terrorist incident. So, and then the, the person who's a suspect is a Somali of Somali extraction born in this country, but his family is Somalian. <laughs> so the linkage, if you like, is, is with Islamic terrorism. But the latest speculation is so banal as to be sort of the saddest thing, which was that maybe Sir David was just very accessible to his constituents and therefore an easy target. It may be, sorry, it may be just as random as that, that he was easy to get. I mean, if you think of what Sir David's life represents, many, many years of service, many, many years dedicated to the most vulnerable in society. I mean, he was described as, as you rightly said, a pro-life champion by right to life. He had an exemplary voting record in Parliament against uh, suicide and uh, abortion bills and uh, for the defence of marriage. I mean, this was an exemplary Christian politician. And I'd rather remember that than speculate about something which was probably as random and uh, as banal as most evil acts are in a way. And Kevin, it sounds like Sir David Amos is someone that the country couldn't spare, someone he who could not easily be spared, someone who was bringing dignity of life issues, uh, the right, the proper focus in Parliament. Yeah, I mean, I think he was uh, known as very much a pro-lifer. What was interesting in the a lot of the media reports that followed his death, what they played played up was his uh, voting record on protecting animals. The pro-life aspect was slightly airbrushed out, I felt, and even his Catholicism was downplayed to some extent. You know, he was described as raised a Catholic. Well, he was more than just raised a Catholic. You know, this was a man who uh, established an all-party parliamentary group to improve relations with the Holy See. He welcomed Pope Benedict to to Britain when, when the Pope visited in 2010. His whole political life was motivated by his faith and his desire to serve other people. This is a politician who who rejected the kind of the usual, I want to get into cabinet, I want to get high office. He did none of that. What he did for all the years that he was uh, an MP was serve his local constituency, serve the local people with very often MPs deal with very mundane problems. You know, people can't get their benefits sorted out or that sort of thing. So he was kind of exemplary in that regard. But what I would say, Grassi, is that maybe the death of Sir David, we're now becoming more aware of, of who he was, what he was, and what he represented in a way that when he was alive, most people in this country would have had no idea of. So in a way, his death acts as a form of witness to public life and to to politician, to the vocation of a politician, which I have to say in this country is very much needed at this time because there's a level of cynicism around politics uh, and around politicians, which then feeds into all sorts of warped ideologies that society can't be changed, that legitimate political processes uh, have to be overturned, you know. It's you know that cynicism breeds the kind of environment where you have this kind of extremism. So I think Sir David's life is a great witness to to a democratic approach, to to an approach where he had very strong views on very unpopular issues, but remained a very popular member of of Parliament 
with friends that were conservatives and friends who were not conservative. So I think his life is 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 a witness, and I think it's important that we we look at that life as that as a witness to to what it means to be a politician uh, in in society, and maybe within that witness therein lies the way in which we can counter terrorism of whatever hue and extremism. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with UK correspondent Kevin Turley of the National Catholic Register. Kevin, it does sound like Sir David was a pattern for politicians, the, the, kind, of politi- the kind of people politicians ought to be, uh, strong in their, in their beliefs, strong in, um, in, in the, and, and strong in, in that uh, desire to serve their constituents and not to simply aggrandize themselves that we see so much in politicians and that we obviously dislike because uh, we're hoping that there are representatives in these democracies that that we live in you know it's also as a witness it it may turn out that he's also a kind of martyr if he was in fact slain for for his defense of the faith and the way that he um he 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 brought all all the beauties of our faith into the public square right to the heart no of uh, of government I mean, there's just there's one aspect of his death which is obviously um, the mainstream media has yes. missed, yeah. which is that he was stabbed shortly after twelve o'clock on a Friday, oh. and that he died shortly before three p.m. Uh, on a Friday, before the hour of great mercy. And uh, you know that 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 strikes a chord with me. I don't know about you. You know. Oh that. no! You gave me goosebumps. I'm talking about him as a as a as a martyr, and he he had his three hours of of torture on his cross before he and passed. And during that and during that time, a priest, his parish priest, went to the scene to try and give him the last rites, and was denied entry by the police. That is very shocking. It is, but it's also it's. I mean, it's also interesting because our Lord, in his three hours of passion, was bereft of any comfort as well, mm-hmm. except for our Blessed Mother. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that the state authorities prevented um, the priest accessing has caused quite a bit of a kickback now in the UK. People, you know, that one of the bishops uh, has said that the last rites for Catholics are, that is an emergency service. That's not some sort of ritual it's an emergency service so maybe some good will come out of it that people will be aware that if a catholic is dying and there is a priest available that you know we need a priest almost more than we need medical services or emergency services i know that uh, Br- uh britain is a very secular place but I, i'm wondering do do anglicans do last rites and was it a lack of uh, understanding of religion in general that prevented the, I, that made them prevent them or was it a lack of understanding of catholicism i, I I think, uh, to be fair, Gracie, I think um, having, I mean, the the police are, um, I'm sure this is the police in most countries, they they kind of, they go by the rule, Mm -hmm. right? So it's a crime scene. Crime scenes should be, you know, nobody should be allowed in, therefore nobody should be allowed in. They they don't seem to be able to... uh, to understand, I mean, the significance maybe of a priest and and Sir David probably went past over the heads, I should say, of the police officers there. I I personally don't read too much into it, but I think I think it's it's interesting that Sir David sort of died for those three hours was dying almost alone, you know, on a Friday. Well, let me ask you, Kevin. I'm curious if if he was stabbed, why wasn't he in an ambulance with the priest next to him? Why was he still in the crime scene? For three hours? Um, because I think, I mean, I, as far as I'm aware, the emergency services arrived and they tried to revive him at the scene. So they were trying to do whatever whatever they were doing at the scene, um, which happened to be a church. You know, he was holding his uh, constituency in, in a church. Not very far. It was, it was not a Catholic church. It was a Methodist church. But it was not very far from a Catholic church. This is the interesting thing. It was just like across the road or something from the local Catholic church. So he died at that time in, in, in church grounds, you know, um, stabbed many, many times. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's, it, who, knows, who knows what the significance of this is, Gracie? I mean, I, I'm just, I mean, like most people, I'm just coming to terms with and thinking it through. But, um, you know, as, as... Had you met Sir David yourself? Well, I, I, I was thinking about that, Gracie, because I have been to a number of events in Parliament and um, 
certainly been to a number of pro-life events where probably all the pro-life MPs were there. And I, after an event like this, you think, and I think I'm, I'm almost certain I was in the same room as him, but I don't think I met him. Uh, which is a shame. I, I would like to have. I know other. Um, I think Edward Penton um, has met him, or had met him. But uh, yeah, it just. I mean, maybe in his death there'll be a, a sort of a something good will come out of it. You know, and I'm not talking about a statue or or you know sort of the platitudes that politicians often say when colleagues die. I mean, understandably. I mean, they're they're often still verbal. But we had we had. Um, uh, a Labour MP in Parliament just the other day giving a sort of a speech about Sir David and he ended with a sort of prayer in Parliament and the whole of Parliament sort of said amen at the end of the prayer and that's kind of like beautiful in a way, you know, that that, that British Parliament, which is not known, I mean, it does have its kind of prayer for the openings and closings and stuff, but it's not really a place where you would expect to find a lot of faith. I mean, there are good some good MPs, but to have that sort of open statement of catholic belief about you know the, uh, the angels leading him to his to his reward you know which is a prayer i mean we're not we're not canonizing anybody but it's a prayer was was quite moving so who knows what what good will come out of this i hope so i hope kevin it sounds like maybe the other pro-life mps and other mps that shared some of his other passions for 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 the for the good and the truth maybe they'll be inspired to to work even harder and 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 bring and do that in in, in his memory and in, in 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 his honor perhaps yeah well i think i mean he's also a very good example that it's very important that we hold to what we believe to be true not something which is popular not something which is going to get votes not something which is going to get us great copy in the media he held to very unpopular causes Mm-hmm. I mean, the pro-life cause in the UK is a very, very unpopular cause, unlike the United States, where, where it, it is part of the politics. It's not really part of the politics in the UK, not, not in any sort of major sense. So he, he, he held to those views because he believed in them. And, and that's, that's a great witness. That's a great witness and something to be remembered. Um, yeah. Well, Kevin, we're almost out of time, but I wonder if we, if I could ask you for a moment about an, a, a, another big Catholic event, a happy one this time, in England, and that is the conversion of a an Anglican uh, prelate to the Catholic Church. Yes, um, the former bitch, Bishop of Rochester, Michael Nazir Ali, um, was received into the Catholic Church on September 29th, the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel and all the angels, and uh, I believe is due to be ordained a priest in due course. I'm not sure when exactly, I different reports, but um, he's a, he was and is a very prominent member, sorry, he was a very prominent member of the Church of England and uh, was quite outspoken for the Church of England. I have to say he wasn't the normal Anglican bishop because an awful lot of his views were very, very good in terms of they were very close to the Catholic position on life, on family, um, on, on speaking out about the persecution of, of Christians. He, he, he had a lot of very good views. So when I heard that he had become Catholic, I wasn't that surprised. Um, what's perhaps a little bit more surprising is that he comes from a wing of the Anglican Church, which is not the most Catholic converts or high Anglicans or Anglo-Catholics, whereas he comes from the evangelical wing. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens next in the life of Michael Nazir Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look forward to him being part of the personal ordinariate of Our Lady of Walsingham, which is the, the body which allows for Anglicans to find a kind of home within the church. I, th- I think it's a great a great event. I mean, it was a little bit of a shock, but it was a pleasant shock, unlike uh, Sir David's death. This was a kind of pleasant shock. But then again, Grassi, I don't think we should be surprised. Um, Grace works, uh, even in England. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, people's hearts will be changed. And who knows, maybe, maybe, people, maybe people will learn about Sir David and their hearts will be moved. And they might think, well, he, I was moved by his life. And what was the central theme of his life? What was the central motivating force? And then maybe their own curiosity may lead them also to the truth. Well, here in the, in the U.S., we'll be praying for Sir David Amos, his family, for his soul, and also for his family and for all the people in the U.K. who have been hurt by this. It sounds like it's, much, it's a much bigger uh, 
sadness than just for Catholics in England, but it's it's a sadness for everyone, and and also for this new conversion. It sounds like uh, that's a that's a wonderful thing for for England. So thank you, Kevin, for joining us, no, and uh, we look forward to having you again. Hopefully, you'll join us again and and keep us on online with everything that's going on over there I'm in your delighted. beautiful country. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we will travel with Jesus to Jericho, literally the lowest place on earth, more below sea level than any other location on the planet. Jesus was passing through that place, representative of the moral pit of the human world, in order to ascend from there the 15-mile road uphill that leads to Jerusalem, where he would suffer and die to lift up the human race in us. St. Mark tells us that as Jesus was passing through the town, Bartimaeus, a blind man, was sitting by the roadside begging. Bartimaeus was not born blind, but had become blind over the course of time. We see that in the verb he himself uses later, in ablepo in Greek, meaning see again. He hadn't just lost his sight. To some degree, he had lost the dignity he had. He was sitting by the roadside begging. He couldn't take care of himself. He needed basic help. He had hit rock bottom. He was in the depth of the valley of darkness in the lowest place on earth. But it was precisely in that spiritual poverty that Jesus would come to meet him. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was passing by, he didn't cry out for alms, which would have been a small request. He didn't cry out at that point even for a miracle. He cried out simply for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. He had doubtless heard of Jesus' reputation for working miracles in Galilee. He was responding in faith. The fact that he called him son of David was a sign that he believed Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus would hear his prayer. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Like rabbis were accustomed to do on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the major feasts, Jesus was teaching the crowds along the journey. When he had heard Bartimaeus' pleas, he stopped in his tracks and ordered that the blind man be brought to him. For Jesus, caring for this man was more important than what he was teaching at that moment, because Jesus was about to show the gospel rather than just verbally describe it. He was also going to show how he responds to persistent prayer. So the people said to Bartimaeus, Take courage, get up, Jesus is calling you. Words of great encouragement to anyone. It would have been very easy for Jesus to have come to meet Bartimaeus exactly where he was begging. He was blind after all. But Jesus loved Bartimaeus too much and understood the human heart too well to do that. Instead, he drew near enough. But then he had Bartimaeus get up to come to him. In order to exercise Bartimaeus' freedom to stoke his desires to grow his faith and to give him greater participation in the miracle Jesus was about to accomplish. It takes courage to get up and leave our comfort zone to respond to the Lord. Bartimaeus had that courage and did. St. Mark tells us he threw aside his cloak, sprang up, and came to Jesus. The cloak was his outer garment that kept him warm at night in the radiational cooling of the Middle East. It was, in a sense, his security blanket. It was quite valuable to him and part of his life. But in crying out and taking courage and going to Jesus who was calling, he was intentionally embracing a new life and establishing a new security. He'd left his cloak behind, which is not just a fact, but an important symbol of how he was thinking more about clinging to Jesus and the new life for which he was hoping than grasping the past. Even though he was blind, he sprung up immediately. He raced to respond to being called by the Lord. Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus replied, Master, I want to see. The Latin words for this have become a very popular Christian prayer, made especially famous by St. Jose Maria Escriva, Domine ut vidiam, Lord, I want to see. Bartimaeus was essentially saying, I want to live in the light. I want to live and see things as they really are. I want to see you. The verb used here in Greek, as I mentioned earlier, is I want to see again. But Emmaus wanted to live in grace again. He wanted to live anew in the light. He knew what he had lost, and he knew where to find it. To say to Jesus, I want to see, is not just to turn to a healer and ask him to restore his vision. It's to say, I want to live in your vision. St. John would write in his gospel, Jesus' words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. That's the gift for which Bartimaeus was begging. But Jesus gave him something more. He told him, go your way, your faith has saved you. 
The Lord not only granted Bartimaeus' wish to see, but heard his initial cry, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus' generosity far outdid Bartimaeus' imagination to ask. Faith in response to God leads to salvation. And even though Bartimaeus didn't ask God for that, God nevertheless gave it. St. Mark tells us, Immediately Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Bartimaeus used his freedom to follow the Lord. He left the depth of Jericho behind and followed Jesus up to Jerusalem. He followed him to Palm Sunday. He followed him along the way of the cross. He followed him all the way. St. Luke in his version of the scene comments, He immediately received his sight and followed him, giving glory to God. When they all saw this, all the people gave glory to God. Bartimaeus spent the rest of his life glorifying God in such a way that others joined him in divine praise. The essence of the Christian life is encapsulated by that phrase, to glorify God in a contagious way that others join us in doing so. That's what the Christian life is all about. The same Jesus who asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you, asked us that question. We're called to learn from the blind man in Jericho how to beg Jesus for the gift of sight. We want to see Jesus in prayer. We want to see him in the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. We want to see Jesus in others, in the face of those we love, in the face of those we find difficult to love. We want to see Jesus behind the distressing masks of the poor, the sick, the lonely, the homeless, the abandoned and the blind. We want to behold Christ's face in the beauties of creation. We want to see him behind each of the commandments, teaching us how to love. We want the eyes to see his will in our daily life, in the present, and for the future. Ultimately, we want to see Jesus forever, face to face in heaven, smiling on us with love. But so often, we're blinded. Sin blinds us. Worries blind us. Pain and suffering blind us. Hatred and prejudices blind us. Others, including those we love, can sometimes get in the way and remove our line of sight. This Sunday is an occasion to ask the Lord to take out whatever planks are in our eyes so that we may see Jesus clearly and follow him like Bartimaeus before us. There's also a very important application of this gospel to our Christian mission in the modern world. In 2012, Pope Emeritus Benedict used the scene of the cure of Bartimaeus to describe the new evangelization, what we need to do to help the blind men and women of our day encounter Christ as he passes by. Pope Benedict commented, The state of blindness has great significance in the Gospels. It represents man who needs God's light, the light of faith, if he's to know reality truly and to walk the path of life. It's essential to acknowledge one's blindness, one's need for this light, otherwise one could remain blind forever. Bartimaeus then, at this strategic point of Mark's account, is presented as a model. He was not blind from birth, but he had lost his sight. He represents man who has lost the light and knows it, but hasn't lost hope. He knows how to seize the opportunity to encounter Jesus, and he entrusts himself to him for healing. Bartimaeus represents man aware of his pain and crying out to the Lord, confident of being healed. His simple and sincere plea is exemplary, and indeed it has found its way into the tradition of Christian prayer. From this perspective, Bartimaeus represents those who live in regions that were evangelized long ago, where the light of faith has grown dim and people have drifted away from God, no longer considering them relevant for their life. These people, therefore, have lost a precious treasure. They have fallen from a lofty dignity. Their lives have lost a secure and sound direction, and they've become, often unconsciously, beggars for the meaning of existence. They are the many in need of a new encounter with Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who can open their eyes afresh and, te afresh and teach them the path. Pope Benedict concludes that we who have the experience of being healed by God through Jesus Christ are called to go out to the present culture of the West, which is like ancient Jericho, where so many blind men and women are crying out for meaning and mercy, perhaps without explicitly realizing it, with the light of Christ, lived in daily life, in the hope that we may guide them to the source of that light, Jesus himself, who wants to lead them from the depths of the darkness of the modern Jericho to the radiant heights of the celestial Jerusalem. At Mass this Sunday, we, like Bartimaeus, will cry out over and again, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. Lord, Christ, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus will come and ask, What do you want me to do for you? In response to our petition to see, dwell, and live in his light, he'll seek to illumine us by his word, and then he will give us a greater gift even than he gave Bartimaeus. He'll give us himself on the inside. No matter what difficulties we're experiencing, no matter the depths to which we may have sunk, Jesus will be passing by us.
Let us take courage because he is calling us. Let us throw off our security blankets and attachments in old ways. Spring up and come to him. And let us, like those following and listening to Jesus along the journey, go to those who are on the sides of the modern road begging for meaning and tell them, take courage. Jesus is calling you too. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 